A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. But this week we are going international. We are recording this on September 9th, 2020. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And our guest today is TV host and former prosecutor Lonnie Coombs. Welcome back, Lonnie. How are you? I am so good, Anna, and it is great to be here with you. Oh, we're so excited you're here because this first case that we're going to talk about it's just perfect for you, <laughs> right? Oh <my> goodness. <laughs> we just we need your insight as a prosecutor into this one, okay? Even if it is international law. So our stories this week, a dad who reported his wife missing after he allegedly killed her was busted by the couple's own eight-year-old son who told police that he witnessed his father killing his mother in their home. Well, the father is now pleaded guilty to murder all because of what the son reported. But- Our first case is out of this world. Yes, it is. Okay. This is Brazil's most popular gospel singer who also happens to be an elected official. You know, she's a congresswoman. She's an evangelical preacher. She is accused of masterminding her husband's murder. Now, he was equally popular. The two of them were like this power celebrity Christian couple, you know, you name it, right? And she apparently not only was the mastermind in killing her husband, she enlisted their children to help kill him. Okay, I don't know where to begin here. First of all, the couple has 55 children, most of them adopted. That in itself is a crazy headline. I, I, it's a wild story. Speechless, eh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, you almost need um, a, a flowchart, a diagram to figure out the people here, because as you said, this couple was larger than life. I mean, they were like the considered to be, you know, the leading figures in the Brazilian evangelical Christian movement. Um, both pastors, they had their own church. Um, she was a singer. She was very popular a celebrity before she became a politician. When she ran in 2018 to be a congresswoman, she got the most votes that I think a female congresswoman has ever gotten in Brazil, um, clearly popular. And a part of their story was the fact that they had these 55 children, some biological, some adopted. But the one thing that you kind of miss unless you read very closely is her husband that we're talking about here actually started out as one of those adopted children. She, he was actually 14 when she adopted him back in 1991. At that time, he was dating, he started dating at some point, one of her biological daughters. By 1998, he wasn't dating the daughter anymore. He now was marrying the mother. Right. He's marrying his stepmother. So this is the power couple we're talking about. Her former adopted son, who is now her husband. Yes. And she is accused of trying to kill him. Well, right. she well, he's dead. The question is, did, was she the mastermind? It's an insane, insane story. All right, so this is a gospel singer turned celebrity politician. 58-year-old Flor Delis de Souza is accused of masterminding an assassination because this was brutal. Um, he was 
coming home and he gets shot 30 times, most of those shots in the groin, okay? Which is a key right there, okay? Anytime someone, a man gets killed and they're shot 30 times, not five times, not 10 times, 30 times, all in the groin area, there's a message being sent there. That's personal. Oh, yeah. Because otherwise you aim for the heart, you aim for the head. Right. But you, the groin is a weird area because when you just look at the landscape of the body, the biggest part is the chest, right? Right, right, right. No, Very- that's usually, yeah, that's usually a, an intimate, personal, intense, emotional, focused killing. Oh, I think so. There's there's a lot going on here in Brazil in this family. Okay, so police say that she managed to pull it off with the help of five of the couple's children and even a grandchild. Remember, they have 55 to choose from. This is insane. So apparently, Flor de Lis had been trying to kill her husband for some time here because police say that she tried to poison him six times times prior to the assassination and it didn't work the guy ended up in the hospital six times yeah and that was over a period of time from 2018 until he was killed in 2019 and apparently allegedly he actually figured it out at some point he realized that they were trying to kill him and he threatened to start bugging the telephones in their home so that he could hear what was going on. And so allegedly at that point, the people who were plotting this killing then started using burner phones. So why he stayed at that point remains to be <laughs> wondered about. But apparently he did stay, even though he did find out that people were plotting to try and kill him. Exactly. Although if you step back and you realize that this is a very popular evangelical couple then you have to realize that it's almost like the couple and the persona of what they have built is almost bigger than the individuals, right? So if this is a money-making machine for them. She sings. She's a politician. You know, they're getting money in um, from their church. They have 55 kids, so many of them grown. You have to imagine if, if you let that bubble burst, right. there goes the whole thing, yeah. right? There goes the whole thing. That that I mean, I don't know why else he would stay with her unless he was madly in love with her. I or, don't know. Or and she could be very persuasive too. You know, I mean, she she was persuasive in her professional life, and maybe she was very persuasive in her personal life with him. I read Lonnie that on that night that he came home and was murdered, that the two of them had gone to a swingers club in the city. Whatever well, that is. <laughs> yes. And apparently, uh, you know, since this murder, there's been a lot of rumors that have now popped out about the couple. That's one of them. I also read that they not only went to the swingers club, but they went with the biological daughter. Who, I think her name was Simone, who was the one that he was dating before he married the mother and Simone's husband. So maybe it was a, a double date to the swingers club. So there's a lot of, you know, these rumors that are alleged um, about some crazy things that they might have been doing, you know, to burst the bubble of that perfect Christian couple image. I think everything's pointing to the groin here. <laughs> everything's pointing to the groin. That's one way to put it. <laughs> All right. So now um, th- this is the, in- oh, and of course, as we know, now the husband's much younger than the wife, although, you know, 
she was she was 30 when she adopted him. So the husband, Anderson Do Carmo. So he was, as we said, hospitalized six times and then shot 30 times that night that he was killed. Now, Flor Delise told the police that her husband died as a result of a botched robbery. And as we all know, or hopefully we do, that um, Rio de Janeiro um, has a lot of crime, a lot of crime. It's a dangerous place, um, and it has a lot of street children, which we will explain as we do a deep dive into the family, where these kids came from um, that she adopted. What's interesting is soon after the murder, apparently one of their children admitted to being part of this plot and then told police that it was another sibling who got the gun that was used to kill the stepfather or the adoptive father. I don't, you know, it depends on who pulled the trigger. So now you have family members implicating other family members. And that's how the entire plot unfolded. And the police realized that it was allegedly the wife behind the whole thing. So let's do a deep dive into the family to maybe understand some of the crazy dynamics and what was going on here. Um, you know, what's interesting about Florida Lise is she's a rags to riches story. She is one of those people who was very, very poor and pulled herself together and became this inspirational woman, you know, between her singing and her preaching, you know, someone to look up to besides her celebrity. So, so people love those stories. People yeah. want to believe in those people and they generally hold them a lot higher. But I always say the hypocrisy of this, right? Yeah, I mean, you worry when they get to be that big in that sphere that there could be hypocrisy behind it, especially when they're setting themselves to be up to be this perfect couple. You know, but she came from very authentic roots. You know, she came from essentially nothing, and her mother was in um, the church, and she would accompany her mother as her mother would sing, and so she had the real gospel roots here um, from her family, and that's sort of where she grew up, and she was singing there, um, and 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 got some fame there from her singing and then became a minister and, you know, just sort of worked her way up gradually um, to become this person that people were starting to hold up to is, you know, look at this amazing woman. She had her own three biological children and she adopted five children. So now she was the mother of eight children while she was, you know, keeping her career going and everything. Um, so up to that point, I think people were really saying she's this, you know, great example for all of us. She really was, and especially the fact that she was um, a congresswoman, because if you look at um, the culture in Brazil, women, um, you know, are, are very much, uh, maybe more than in other cultures, um, made into sex symbols and items. You know, we talk about the Brazilian, but there are a lot of things that come out of Brazil where uh, maybe women are, are, are not always at the at the... How could I explain this? They're not put in power positions where they're making decisions and, you know, being able to govern. And, and she did make it into that position on a platform saying that she was going to push for women's rights and the family. And, you know, this very wholesome image that she was going to bring forward these, you know, issues that are important to women and families as well, which was a voice that's needed, obviously, in any government, you know, up at the top. Um, absolutely, absolutely. And, it, you know, when she started um, when she started adopting all these children and, and it became tons of children, we're up to 55 now. A lot. 
things started to change a little bit. She started getting some criticism, actually, and some people started accusing her of maybe kidnapping these children. Uh, rumors, those rumors then grew into a police investigation, and she actually ended up having to go to court, and she was able to explain to the court and present evidence that she was just trying to save many of these street children from prostitution, gangs, drugs, and ultimately that case was dropped. But they were very suspicious of her because that is an awful lot of kids. Mm -hmm. So on World Adoption Day, of course, she was a featured speaker, as you can imagine. And th this is her quote. She said, the children were being killed for the simple fact that they were homeless, which really is true in, mm -hmm. on the streets of Rio de Janeiro. 37 children, she says, knocked on my door one morning. I not only opened the door to my house, but I opened the door to my heart. So as a result of that, this movie was made about her life and all of these very famous Brazilian actors and actresses were a part of the storytelling of her life, right? Mm -hmm. And the movie did very well and it catapulted Flor de Lis to an even higher realm, if you will, of celebrity. The actors said that they didn't accept any money, that all the money went to the 55 children. I would say red flag, ding, 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 ding. Who's in charge of the money for these children? Right. Okay. Right. <laughs> All of a sudden those children become, you know, a money source, which right then is so tempting to so many people that they, you know, they uh, capitalize on that and end up using the children. Yeah. And if you get a divorce and then the family splits up, that's, that story doesn't sell tickets, does it? It, it just... Right. People are not interested in that or they might be. So, as we said, in 1991, Anderson Do Carmo was brought into the family as a child, an adoptee, a teen, but ends up marrying the woman who adopted him. And I how is that even legal? I don't know. It's interesting. So in 1991, he was 14. She was 30. OK, that's when she adopts him in 1998. He's 21 and she's. 37. So just when he became, you know, I'm not sure what the legal age is there for being, you know, not being a minor anymore, but 21, now they're getting married and he's becoming the father to, or stepfather or father figure to all the children she has, including the daughter that he'd been dating for who knows how long. Okay. This reminds me of Woody Allen. I know. I know. I thought the same thing. Same thing. And, and just think, I mean, how do you think that daughter feels? The Which daughter? daughter? The, the daughter that was dating him. Oh, I don't know, but she went to the swingers club with daddy and mommy. Well, that was, that was one rumor, one story I read. The other story was, you know, when he was being um, poisoned all those times, that apparently she did, that was supposedly arsenic. But in one of her computer searches, she um, searched cyanide in food. Yes, and she said when she was questioned about it later was because she, a friend had a sick dog and she was trying to help them. And, you know, as I've always said, a Google search is not going to convict you of a crime. However, <laughs> it points, it helps to tell a story, doesn't it, of where yes, your mind does. is at. Exactly. It goes to like, what are you thinking? What are you doing? Yeah. Daddy the dog, not sure, yeah. not sure. But good information to know either way. Yeah, very, very good, interesting information. So 
after Anderson marries his former mother, mother. yes, he's in charge of the family business. He's in charge of the finances. This is starting to sound like traditional Brazil now. And he also joins the family business. And the two of them now become this power couple. And he becomes a preacher at this evangelical preacher. Very interesting, right? So he goes mm -hmm. into the family business. And now everybody, you know, wants to know who they are. They're like, this is the greatest story ever. Yeah, it's interesting that the, their congregation apparently didn't seem to have a problem with, you know, the origins of this relationship. So they were accepted and welcomed and revered as these great preachers. And, you know, their ministry, their church was very popular, very successful. And even though we're talking about a case in Brazil, honestly, this has all the hallmarks of something that would happen in the U.S., right? Oh, yeah. Totally. Yes. I mean, these things are international. These crimes are international. This one's just so interesting because of the massive adoption of children. Okay. Because that, 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 you would think that these folks were on the radar and everyone watching them all the time because of it. Like, yeah. how could you even hide these people? How do you have dinner for 55 plus the parents? Yeah. I, I, I'm how, do you, how do you house them and clothe them and all of those things? I mean, that's a lot of people. And that requires a lot of money, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. All right. In 2004, she decides she wants to become a politician. So she runs for council. It's unsuccessful. However, the movie then comes out, and they're gaining a lot more traction. And in 2018, she's elected to Congress. So the family, something's going on while she's elected to Congress. Clearly something that the investigators believe that financially there was a lot of trouble. And they believe that there were a few things going on between the couple. One, that there was a power struggle over money and that there was an issue over money. Uh, there's speculation. Uh, there's speculation that perhaps divorce would have been an issue that would ruin the family business. There was also speculation that the power struggle was not just about money, but also about the children because the husband, Anderson, felt that maybe she treated some of the children differently than she treated others. She apparently treated the children who were her biological children, who she adopted early on. Allegedly, she would treat them better. They would get better food. They'd get better bed beds and, you know, just all of the things that you have around your home. They got the better pick of all of that. And as you can imagine, if you have all these other children, it that is not a good environment to try and raise children, especially when they're so vulnerable and they've come from where they have. Y you don't want to do that. You don't want to favor the biological children over the adopted children. That's just a recipe for disaster. Yeah. It, it just, it's very, very concerning to me about what was really going on in this house. So again, it comes down to power. It comes down to money. Isn't it always that? Yeah. And a lot of this goes back to their prestige that came and the money that came from their perfect image. Later on, allegedly one of the, you know, co-conspirators or children, I believe was said that she had talked about getting a divorce, but she said that would be ungodly. So yes. she, she couldn't divorce him because that would be ungodly. But if, he could be done away with and you could blame it on, you know, a, a, a robbery gone bad, then 
all her problems are solved and she doesn't have to worry about the image being tainted. In fact, she becomes even more of this glorified victim, right? It might even work even to her favor to help keep that money-making image going on. She reportedly wrote in a message to one of the children, quote, what am I supposed to do? I can't separate from him because that would scandalize the name of God. And of course, that's a translation. So if it doesn't sound exactly right to you, but think about it. She's more worried about how divorce is going to look than murder. Of course, she thinks she can pull off this plot. Therefore, it will look like a random violent crime. Exactly. And once again, it has nothing to do with the Christian values that she's, you know, spouting out. It has everything to do with the image and maintaining that Christian image. So murder's okay, as long as you can get away with it. But divorce, no, 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 that, that would be considered ungodly. And we see this all the time with murder couples, uh, with murder situations with couples. And I'm always astonished. And we, it's, I feel like we replay the same conversation mm-hmm. that you and I have. Isn't it so much easier just to divorce someone than to yes. kill them? You would think so. You would think so. And yet it's surprising how many partners actually think they can get away with it mentally, emotionally, physically, under the law. They think they're going to get away with it. And it's just crazy how you can get in that mindset. I know. I know. I've never been able to figure it out. But nonetheless, it continues. Now, investigators believe that up to 10 of her children may have been involved in this crime. Police served nine arrest warrants and 14 search warrants in several cities, different apartments, because they're all, you know, the family's all over the place. I, I don't know. And this, and here's the next part of this incredible story. So, the police have a case and they want to arrest her. But they can't because the law in Brazil says if you're a congressperson, you cannot be arrested. And I wonder if that is why she ran for Congress in the first place. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Yes, because actually she was elected in 2018. That's when the poisoning started. Yep. It totally makes sense. And it, it, it puts a whole level of evil to this. If it's all true, because of course she hasn't, you know, been proven guilty yet. But the fact that she would do this and use her children, knowing that her children are not protected, they don't get the immunity that she gets because she's a a politician. She is going to be able to get away with this when they're going, they're being arrested, they're going to go to jail, you know, they're going to be punished for this. Her children, her grandchild. Um, but in Brazil, they have parliamentary immunity. Many countries do. We have it, you know, but in Brazil, you are immune from anything, whether it's civil or criminal, whether it's while you're in your politician duties or not. So most of the countries say, well, it can only be for civil acts. And it's only if you're acting within your duties or your responsibilities as a politician. So the reason that they have this immunity to protect politicians is because they don't want politicians to essentially be bullied, threatened with prosecution if they take a position that isn't popular. So it's supposed to protect them in their duties and the responsibilities and whatever voting they may be doing as a politician. But Brazil has gone way overboard in their constitution and said, we're going to protect are politicians from any civil potential civil crimes or criminal crimes 
whether it's within the scope of their duties as a politician or not. So in this case, as long as she holds that position as a congresswoman, she has immunity regardless of what the charge is, even if it is the murder of her husband, which would clearly not be within the scope of her responsibilities as a politician. It's stunning because you would think there would be an, an exemption, at least for murder, right? Exactly. At least for murder, you know, and, and it just seems like common sense that the exemption would be if you're acting beyond the scope of your responsibilities in your personal life, we're not going to protect you for that because you have to be equal to everyone else. That's what most of the countries say. Look, you're, you're equal to everyone else. So whatever you do in your personal life, if you're committing crimes, uh, civil or criminal, you can be prosecuted for them. So the only recourse they have in Brazil is to get her taken out as, as a congresswoman, have her stripped of her responsibilities. Law enforcement actually went to Congress and said, look, you as a body need to strip your colleague of these, um, her, her duties and her responsibilities so we can prosecute her. Look at this mountain of evidence. So they're one of the um, fellow congressmen, a right-wing congressman and former police officer named Leah, Leo Mata demanded that she be stripped of her term. And he said, quote, given the avalanche of evidence against Congresswoman Ford Elise, it is clear she cannot remain in the position to which she was elected. It's worth stressing that the Congresswoman always sought to project the image of a Christian woman committed to raising her adopted children and concerned about the family, while simultaneously exhibiting behavior which, if the police inquiry's claims prove true, suggests a perverse, crime-inclined heart. And yes. he is also, by the way, he is also a gospel singer. Oh, of course he is. <laughs> oh, and I said, of course he is. Yes, of course he is. So um, this is the, the uh, congressman that's leading the charge to try and get her stripped of her position so that they can file charges against her. And there's also some discussion about changing the law in Brazil because of a case like this to, to make it to make it possible for the police to go after someone, especially in the case of murder. Now... Even though I guess you can say she she can't really she can't be arrested so she can't be charged, she is saying that she is innocent of all of this, and she's of course crying herself long song out there, and uh, she's going to have the ability to 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 do that. And the question is, can she sway public opinion? I don't know. I don't think she can. She's trying to, though. Apparently, before all the rests went down, she posted this loving Instagram picture of her and her husband riding on a, a camel, I think it was, and talking about how much she loved him and how she missed him and how she will love him forever. And so, you know, she's working hard putting that image out there on social media. We'll see if um, what the public believes. We're going to follow this case because it's just so extraordinary. Now, before we move on to our next story, we have a word from our sponsor. Our second story brings us back to the United States, to New Albany, Indiana, where a man has been found guilty of murdering his wife after their eight-year-old son told a school counselor that he saw his father kill his mother in the basement of their home. However, this happened after the mother had already been reported missing. So 50-year-old Judson Hoover, so that would be the dad, has pleaded guilty to one count of murder. And this happened only three days after he was arrested for killing his wife, 
Rebecca Hoover, who was 38. He had this change of heart because his son outed him and was able to prove to the police that his story about what he saw actually lined up with the injuries that his mother sustained. So the little boy was not lying at all. And I, I say this over and over again, and I, I know we have a lot of you know, famous cases where children have lied, but I do believe overall in things like this, children don't lie. When children cry out for help, I don't really believe that they're lying. Well, and I was thinking a lot about this young child, eight years old in this case. The fact that he was able to overcome whatever fear and distrust he had with adults, which imagine living in this home, um, you would probably have a lot of that mistrust already with adults and fear because he actually watched his father brutally murder his mother right in front of him. Um, And it wasn't the way it was done. Couldn't have been very quick. It was just a a very vicious, violent, um, bloody death. And there was a prior incident that we'll talk about as well that, you know, he must have known about as well. And the fact that now he was with the murderer living with his father, eight years old, to have the courage to go to someone, go to a, a, the school teacher and say, this is what happened to my mother. Uh, this little boy is a true hero in my eyes because I don't know that anything would have been done on this case if he had not come forward because she had been reported missing by her mother. The police went out, looked around the house, didn't see her. And that was pretty much it for the, ne- the next three or four weeks, about three weeks until the little boy finally came forward and was able to tell the school teacher what happened. And then they, they started acting on it. But for those three weeks or so, um, it didn't look like any investigation was going on. The father was moving on. He filed for divorce. He got you know um, custody of his children. And it, it seems like it could have been a long time, if ever, that they, anyone really figured out what had happened to this mother if this little boy had not come forward. Can you imagine what was going through his brain his mind. He's eight years old. He's just witnessed his father kill his mother. And for the next few weeks, he's actually wrestling with what to do with that. Who knows what level of intimidation, violence, torture was placed upon him, even if his dad didn't know that his son saw anything, right? But clearly, you know, your mother's missing. So, and you know that your dad killed her. Can you imagine what it took for him to finally break three weeks later and go to someone at school and tell them what happened. Yeah, it's huge that he was able to, that he realized that it needed to be done, that it was the right thing to do. He could have just gone on and sort of, you know, lived with the father and and continued on and acted like nothing had happened. Um, But we don't know what the father was doing to him, if he was doing anything to him. Um, But just in his mind, even if he wasn't, he had to have thought, well, if he could do this to mom, and then I tell somebody, what's he going to do to me, right? So we don't know if in his mind, he was literally putting his own life on the line saying, I'm going to tell what happened to my mom. I may end up dead because of this. I mean, we don't know what he was thinking. Um, but, but at eight years old, he had the courage to come forward and say that. And I really am so impressed by that, by that action that he took. And let's hope that he's getting all of the mental health support out there to sustain him because 
His mother is dead. His father is going to be in prison for the rest of his life. And what he witnessed was so brutal. And also to live with the knowledge that the reason, obviously, father made the choice to kill mother, allegedly, right? So that's why he is in prison. But the fact that you basically turned your father in, that's another level of guilt for a child to process. Because as we see over and over again with abused children, no matter how badly abused they are, they still want the love, admiration, respect of their parents, even the abusive ones. It's still their parent. I mean, we talk about parents when they, if they know that their child has done something wrong, do they go to the police and say, my child committed this crime? You know, that's a huge dilemma as a parent with adult reasoning and thinking. And here's this child now for the rest of his life, knowing that he's, you know, he's the one that set in motion the fact that the father ends up in prison. And like you said, no matter what the father did, he's still his father. He's still his father. And that's what he's, you know, as a child, you always think. So when the boy told someone at school what had happened, the school contacted police immediately. And on that day, when the father arrived to pick up the son from school, police were waiting for him. Now, here's what's interesting. Police said, may we search your house? And the father consented. They didn't even need a warrant. He said, sure, go ahead. Search the house. Okay, While they're searching the house, police are also talking to the little boy, and that's when the boy provides more detail than he told the teacher. The boy said that he saw his father stomp on his mother about 20 times and then punched her until she stopped moving. Police say that they found blood spatter at the bottom of the basement stairs. Which is where the little boy said it happened, is in the basement. Exactly, exactly. Then police look at surveillance footage and they show that Judson Hoover, this is the father, moved a 55-gallon container from storage unit around August 28th. Okay, why do we have a giant drum that must be moved? Ordinarily, if you're not doing anything wrong, that's not a problem, unless, of course, you have committed a murder. So he gets um, arrested. But here's, here's the weird part. When the cops go to the storage unit, Rebecca's not there, and her body is not there, and the drum is not there. But detectives say that they could smell the odor of a body decomposing, which if you've ever smelled it, you will know it immediately. So after he finally is taken into custody, then he tells them, oh, well, I rented another storage unit in Louisville, Kentucky, and then they go, they search, and that's where they find her remains shoved in this 55-gallon drum. That happened on August 31st. Autopsy of the body shows that Rebecca died from blunt force trauma to the head and abdomen, supporting the boy's account of how the mother was killed. Which is interesting. I mean, he gave such concise detail. He's described his dad as stomping on his mother's head about 20 times while he was wearing work boots. And then that he had keys in his hand as he punched her over and over again. She was not moving at this point, according to the little boy. And he punched her over and over again in the stomach. So that matches exactly what the autopsy says, blunt force trauma to the head area and to the 
abdomen area, which is interesting because Judson, when he does admit that he did it, he actually says he strangled her, which is not consistent with what the autopsy is. So we still needed the little boy to tell the truth, right? As to actually what happened. I mean, he did say, yeah, I killed her. I think I strangled her. That was essentially what his confession was. But the little boy was the one that was very accurate on the details as to exactly what he did. And it matched the autopsy. Why, as a prosecutor, why do you think that if he's already admitting to murdering his wife, why would he say, oh, yeah, I strangled her instead of actually saying how he really killed her? You know, it's such a good question. I, I actually thought about this a lot this morning. I was like, why did he think it was more manly? Like, um, you know, for some reason, stomping on your wife's head when you're, with your work boots would be considered unmanly. And that he thought that this was more macho, or maybe he thought that he could say that it was in a heat of passion, you know, like, oh, just suddenly I wasn't thinking about it, just strangled. And, you know, because that tends to be what people do, like, well, you see that a lot in the heat of passion and they get in, they just strangle and then all this, oh, you know, they're dead. Whereas stomping with the boots over and over and over again just shows such a level of maliciousness. But it's also interesting that the prior incident that he had yes, absolutely. that he had been arrested for was very, very similar. Um, in the last one, uh, which happened April 7th, only a few months before this, he was arrested for domestic battery in the presence of a minor, once again, doing this in front of his children, and a felony for strangulation. So in that case, he must have strangled her, but he also, well, here's what it's interesting. The way it was described is she was trying to get him to leave the house when he knocked her to the ground and kicked her in the head, neck, and face 15 to 20 times using his foot to apply pressure to her neck. So the strangulation wasn't like this. It was him literally holding her down with one foot on her neck while he kicked her with the other one. So I don't know. I don't know why he said strangulation. I really don't. It's interesting that it's this is a repeat almost. Which is so upsetting because he actually was arrested on that one. On mm -hmm. April 13, he was arrested. Let's see. And the, a warrant was issued on April 13th. He was arrested April 17th. Not rushing out there to get this guy, right? Um, so four days to find him and was released the next day after paying 10% of a $10,000 bond. So, so a thousand bucks and he's out. Exactly. So I guess if you stomp on your wife's head 15, 20 times in front of your kids, you're going to be out. So he feels pretty free to do it again, right? Only this time he ended up actually killing her. So I, I, I think that's a tragedy that he didn't get held in jail longer, you know, a higher bail, that he didn't get taken to court, that there wasn't a punishment done more quickly in that first case and she might still be alive. She might be. A and we see this over and over again where yep. the system which seems like this nebulous thing that you describe, fails the victim. And it, and it did. It did. And not only that, but when her mother um, reports her as missing, right? And the police, if they did their due diligence, would have looked and said, oh my goodness, in April, a few months ago, he was beating her in the head, stomping on her neck in front of the children. What do we think happened here? She's probably not just missing. She probably didn't just walk away from her family. There's something we really need to look into as opposed to, well, let's go look around the house. Oh, she's not here. Okay, I guess she's not here. You know, and let it sit for three weeks until the little boy has to come forward and point the finger at her fa his father. It's such a travesty. It really is. It's a travesty of justice. It's, it's immoral. It's, it's everything you could think of. And it defies common sense. 
And it is shocking because he would be the first person you'd be looking for. And wouldn't the police also find it very bizarre that her mother, right, so the little boy's grandmother, her mother reports her missing. She's worried. And the following day, the husband files for divorce. Yep. Is, well, what is that about? Oh, yeah. because we're pretending that she's alive? Yeah. I, I, it, I, I'm left speechless with this one because it's so disturbing and it didn't have to happen if the law had worked the way it should have and he wasn't allowed out and she had gotten some protective services and maybe also at least they would have found her sooner and that little boy wouldn't have been toiling for three weeks trying to figure out what is the right thing to do when you're only eight years old and you're you're really not sure of of what is right anymore a friend of rebecca's told wave three news that this abuse had gone on for years, way before the domestic violence arrest in April. And the father said in court that the reason he accepted the guilty plea, meaning we're done here, he's done, right? He, he's going to be sentenced. That's the next thing. He's not contesting this. So he said the reason he took the deal to plead guilty to murder was so his son wouldn't have to testify in court. Well, it's nice. What a great thinking, dad, huh? What a yeah. great dad. Yeah, he's thinking of him now. He did. He didn't think of him when he killed the mother, but he's thinking of him now, where he doesn't have to testify. Well, you know, at least at least that's something. Not it is. Enough. Well, I think it'd be also incredibly embarrassing to him. It's more really about him not being embarrassed than about protecting his son from further trauma. Yeah, but I am glad that that little boy doesn't have to do anything else. You know, agreed. Point agreed again. So the dad will be sentenced on October 2nd. Yeah, and he's looking at a max of 45 to 65 years in prison. So Let's hope he gets it all. Deserves it. It is time for our comment section. These are the crime stories you all are talking about. An 85-year-old Tennessee man is accused of impersonating a deputy, trying to arrest a woman, and then pulling a gun in a store. Police arrested Manfred Filsinger, after claiming that he was a sheriff's deputy, of course, he couldn't have been thinking straight because he claimed this to the police themselves. Okay, <laughs> so already we know this is not going to work out well for Manfred. A woman told police that she was approached by him, that he accused her of a burglary. He told her that he was with the Shelby County Sheriff's Office and that she was under arrest. And then he allegedly hit her and, with a black stick. He grabs her. And then she ran into a business where there were two employees and they tried to stop the man from entering the store. That's when he allegedly pulled out a handgun and he pointed it at them. He also flashed a badge as if that might change the scenario. Okay, so now they're really confused because the guy's got a badge, even though he's 85 years old. And you're like, what the heck's going on here? So the clerks in the store call the police anyway. Thank goodness that they did because... Police got there and they're like, dude, you are not with the sheriff's department. We are taking you into custody. Uh, and he has now been charged by authentic real deputies. He has been charged with aggravated assault, simple assault and criminal impersonation. What the heck was going on here? Yeah, and it's actually it's funny because he's 85 years old. So that was probably a tip off that wasn't right. But it's also scary because this does happen. 
you know, and look at the, the lengths he went. He was, you know, had a badge. He had a gun. He had a stick. I mean, he had all the accoutrements that you have to get somewhere to look like a police officer. He was sort of acting that way with her. He came up with this ruse. Thank heavens there were people nearby that, you know, didn't fall for it, that helped this woman out. Um, but you hear over and over again these stories about, like, people getting pulled over in their cars and they're not sure if it's really a police officer and sometimes things happen because they're not police officers. Because we all tend to very quickly acquiesce to, you know, if we see a uniform, we're like, oh my goodness, we've got to be careful. We're going to try and do everything just right. And you don't even take the time to say, are they legitimate before, you know, you start complying. And so, uh, you know, there's different things. Like if you're being followed by a police car and you're not um, sure about it, they say drive to a police station. Station, right. Yeah. Go somewhere where it's lit, where there's other people around. So um, it never hurts to be careful in those situations. Absolutely. Yes, but there was a lot. There must have been other things going on with this guy. Yeah. You know, definitely other things going on. So Tamio writes, Grandpa gone wild. <laughs> Debbie H., it's scary because people posing as officers is more common than we hear about. Exactly as you just said, Lonnie. Absolutely. Okay, our next case, a North Carolina cop is accused of stealing $5,000 in gym equipment from the YMCA. A North Carolina Highway Patrol officer is facing charges of stealing $5,000 worth of equipment from the Y, according to the arrest warrant. Jerome J.J. Letcavage, who's 44 years old, was arrested and charged with felony larceny. He allegedly took kettlebells, dumbbells, resistance bands, and all this stuff from the Warlick Y. And, I mean, the question is, why? Okay, he's a 22-year veteran of the agency. He's been put on administrative uh, duty, and this pretty much is going to end your career. Yeah, I have so many questions. First of all, why steal it from the Y, the YMCA? I mean, come on, you know, it's hard enough for them to be able to have the resources. You know, they're there for everybody. Second of all, $5,000 worth of, you know, kettlebells. (laughs) I mean, that's that's some very expensive kettlebells. I mean, yes. if there were that many, he got to work out just carrying them out to his car wherever he was carrying them because that would be a lot of weights. And resistance bands, you know, they're not that expensive. So yeah. I don't know how they got up to the $5,000, but that it is just sad, honestly. I mean, I will say, I always like to see my law enforcement officers in shape, all right? So I, I think it's good as a law enforcement officer to want to stay in shape. That's a good thing, but this is not the way to go about it. No, this is not. And Maganda M writes, gyms are closed. He needed. And Dragona S writes, if he didn't steal a treadmill, elliptical, and two stationary bikes, how is it $5,000? And that is an excellent question. Kettlebells are not that expensive. Certainly not resistance bands. Well, that is it for our program this week. Lonnie, thank you so much for joining us. It's always such a pleasure. So much fun to talk with you. Um, where can people find you if they want to follow you or get in touch with you? Uh, well, I'm on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, but also be watching um, Oxygen because I actually got some projects coming out. I got out this month to, to work on another project. It was wonderful to be out working um, you know, on location again, working on some cases. So be watching Oxygen. Excellent. Can't wait. You don't know when they're coming out yet. Um, probably in, uh, fall time. Well, yeah, yeah. Soon. Soon. <laughs> yeah, it's, okay. fall. it's September already. I keep forgetting. <laughs> it, it is indeed fall already. Great. Yeah. So just follow Lonnie on Instagram or Facebook, and then you'll know yeah. when the programs will be out. 
You can find me on all social media platforms at Anna G News, A-N-A, that's only one N. As you know, I read your comments, I respond to you, I respond on YouTube a lot. Alani, you'll get a kick out of this one. Someone actually responded to me on, on YouTube and said, oh yeah, right, you're Anna Garcia actually responding. You're just, you work for her, right? You're just a PR person. If you're really Anna Garcia, then I'm going to admit to being a serial killer. So I say to that person, please confess to your crimes because I am indeed Anna Garcia and I really do respond to your messages. Good for you. <laughs> it's like, where, what, who would I hire to answer for me? Oh my gosh. Okay. So you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. And of course on YouTube. You can get updates by subscribing to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We have more than 4 million subscribers now. Thank you. Fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. It is great. It's great because of great guests like you and our huge crime family, as I call them. So until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm Anna Garcia, your host, and we remind you, don't do crime. (laughs) 